Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm Julie Fetty, host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Julie Berabitsky about her new book entitled Sex and the Office, A History of Gender, Power, and Desire. Julie is Professor of History and Director of the Women's Studies Program at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. Julie Berabitsky, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Julie, could you begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I grew up in California, uh, and actually what's interesting about my academic background is that in college I never even took a history course. I was one of those people who had, uh, in high school, a history teacher who was the football coach and who just read from the textbook. So when I went to college, I avoided history uh, completely. But I did get involved in the uh, Women's and Gender Studies program. And so that was where my sort of interest in women's issues uh, and in learning about women's past uh, developed. Uh, I initially thought that I would be an activist and I went to graduate school uh, in Women's and Gender Studies at George Washington, uh, thinking I would be an activist, thinking I would get a master's degree in public policy. And at some point I realized that Uh, I didn't really find that very intellectually stimulating, and a good friend of mine said, I think you'd be a great historian, take a class. Uh, I did that uh, at George Washington, got interested in women's history, and then went uh, to Temple University for my PhD to work with Margaret Marsh, who's a women's historian who has done a lot of work on gender, who did a lot of work on uh, the history of infertility. Uh, So... I am in sort of late to history, but uh, have been working on gender issues for a very long time now. This is your second book. How did you come to write Sex in the Office? Uh, I came to write Sex in the Office uh, after my first book, which was on the history of adoption. And that first book came out of uh, the research I had done uh, with Margaret Marsh on the history of infertility. And it turned out that there wasn't really a book on the history of adoption. Um, but even before I started to started graduate school uh, for my PhD, I had had a summer job working for the Frederick Law Olmsted paper. So Olmsted, of course, is the uh, designer of Central Park, uh, someone who is associated with the creation of the park movement in the United States. And what my job was, uh, was to help annotate uh, his letters. And so um, this was back in the early 1990s before there were very many newspapers online. So I spent hours upon hours uh, at the Library of Congress going through newspapers on microfilm to try to figure out what was going on in terms of New York City and the park movement. Um, And one day, I happened upon uh, a short article in the New York Times from 1880 uh, that was talking about a woman who had been a young woman uh, walking on her way to work and a man standing outside in front of a store grabbed her, kissed her. Uh, She tried to slap him. He kept holding on. She finally escaped. She ran to the corner and uh, hailed down a police officer who promptly arrested the man. 
Uh, he went to jail for a few days. He um, was uh, given a heavy fine. And it struck me as just uh, unusual, right, that women experience that sort of street harassment all of the time. Up until just the last few years, uh, nobody has ever really done anything about it. So I was surprised that uh, the, the criminal justice system took it so seriously. So at that point, I just made a copy of it. I stuck it in a file um, uh, things I might might want to work on someday. And when I finished my book on adoption, I looked in that file, saw it, and decided uh, I wanted to see if I could put something together on the history of, of sexual harassment. So your story about sex in the office begins in the 1860s during the Civil War when women first began taking office jobs. Can you tell us about that historical development? So women um, really get the chance to enter into the white-collar office during the Civil War when virtually all of the men are away at war. Uh, They get their first chance in the Treasury office, um, clipping money uh, and putting the money into bundles. No one is really very happy about, or in terms of of the male administration of the Treasury office, no one is really all that happy about it. Um, But it is something they they need to do because male employees are not available. And one of the interesting things uh, is that within a few years of women working in the Treasury office, there's already so much uh, concern about scandal, about... uh, the male uh, supervisors taking advantage of of the women employees or the women employees being immoral and trying to seduce these men, that Congress uh, starts an investigation. So from the very first minute that women are in the white-collar office working with men, uh, there is this concern about morality. There's this concern about sexuality. And part of this has to do with the fact that these are middle-class women, uh, they are middle-class women who, for whatever reason, let's say uh, they're widows, let's say they are uh, women whose, whose fathers have died and, and they are um, uh, unable to, uh, to rely on family wealth to support themselves. Uh, they might be a widow with children. So these are women who have been forced into the labor market but who still want to be thought of as middle-class uh, the problem, though, of course, is that a middle-class woman would never spend time alone in an office with a man that she did not know, with a man who wasn't a family friend or a relative. So the very fact that these women are in that space with men that they haven't been properly introduced introduced to, uh, that there's not probably enough supervision, that something could happen, that's instantly a point of cultural concern. So middle-class women in the beginning and white women, presumably. Yes. And besides the Treasury office, um, how quickly after did they begin to enter the private sector? Well, even within the federal government, it becomes pretty clear early on that although uh, there is initial hesitation about having women in the office, that they're cheap, right? That you can pay women a whole lot less than what you would have to pay a man. So it switches from something that is necessary uh, at the outbreak of the war to something that is seen as a sort of uh, fiscally ideal situation. So women start to um, go into various other departments in the federal government. And by the 1870s and 80s, when you start to see... uh, greater acceptance of typewriters, uh, as you start to see the rise of corporations, which create more paper, uh, women start to move into the private sphere. Uh, 
Um, again, there's sort of controversy because it is unmarried women uh, spending their days with uh, men who they don't know. And men are resistant to it because the presence of a woman uh, seems to make them feel like they probably shouldn't curse, uh, that they're going to have to be on their best behavior. So many men are certainly resentful of women's presence. It also uh, seems t- for many men to be a form of emasculation. If I'm a white-collar man and all of a sudden there are women in my office and I'm working next to a woman, does that suggest that I am no longer a man, that I have actually become a uh, sort of... Uh, a, a woman who's doing paperwork, right? So white-collar men in the late 19th century are already feeling somewhat emasculated. They're not entrepreneurs. Uh, they don't control their own destiny. They're usually working uh, for someone, not for themselves. So those men are starting to to feel really sort of under the gun in terms of how to uh, claim a masculine identity. And when women then come in, uh, it seems even more like white-collar work is feminized, is, is not really manly. And so that's certainly a big part of my book, uh, how men you ultimately come to use women in the office and use sexual exploits um, uh, with those women or sexual coercion of those women to lay claim to a new type of manhood, uh, a sort of uh, white-collar Casanova manhood. What about the ideals of femininity at the time, still in the 1870s, 80s? So certainly uh, this is a time in which the notion of female passionlessness is still around. So the idea that women do not have the same types of sexual desires as men, uh, that women really would have to be in love to ever uh, make a choice to have sex uh, with men. Uh, certainly that a woman really wouldn't, a, a true woman wouldn't consent to sex outside of marriage. So women go into these offices and uh, that's what's expected of them. But What's interesting is that the situation of women in the office shows how shallow this belief in female passionlessness is, right? So that's a sort of cultural ideal. That's what everybody says. Oh, yes, uh, women are without desire. But once you find women in the office, uh, what you see happening is this real belief that maybe some women are vamps and that maybe we shouldn't be so concerned about unprotected women in the office, maybe we should be concerned about these men who are just men. They've got desires. Uh, to be a man is to, to be, to some degree, driven by your desires. And now there's these women in the office who are going to take advantage of men's vulnerability. So despite this belief in female passionlessness and female purity, uh, when men and women are in these new situations together, all of a sudden people start to say, hey, you know what, there's this concern about uh, about women uh, being in danger, but maybe it's the men who are really in danger. And and part of my argument for the book is that this sort of um, who is really in danger? Um, are women the victims, or are the men who uh, who have women take advantage of their of their sexual desires? Are those really are men really the ones who are victims? Uh, and we see that still today. In your book, Sex in the Office, Julie. You use a vast array of sources. Can you tell us about some of those sources? So um, trying to 
research a book on sexual harassment uh, is obviously difficult in the sense that that term sexual harassment is not even coined until 1975. Um, and of course, given the sort of uh, hes- hesitancy to talk about sex in the 19th century, especially if you're a woman, um, women are not going to sort of speak directly to the expo- exploitation they experience. So they're going to use sort of coded language like an insult, uh, like he didn't respect me. So you have to do a good bit of reading between the lines. Um, So what I did was I used a lot of fiction already in the late 19th century. There's a good bit of fiction that talk about women in the office. And certainly, excuse me, certainly sexuality comes uh, comes up in those stories. Um, I also looked at uh, stenographer journals, uh, which were about teaching women and men uh, the skills of stenography, but they oftentimes had oftentimes had fictional stories as well. And then what I really enjoyed uh, using were things that I actually found on eBay. So in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, especially the early 20th century, there started to be a postcard craze um, where there would be these humorous postcards and um, many of them featured uh, the office where there would be a, a postcard with a an attractive young woman sitting on her boss's lap, uh, maybe a wife, a jealous wife uh, bursting in. So I was able to use fiction. I was able to use newspapers. I was able to use government reports on um, the position of women in the workforce and then just a wide range, a range of, of advertisements and other uh, sort of visual sources. Um, in terms of of one of the sort of early concerns of women in the office, one of the interesting concerns was that these women uh, who were working uh, with men actually represented a threat to marriages. And one of the in the late eight in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, one of the most interesting debates uh, is about whether or not a working woman would make a better wife than someone uh, who was purely domestic. So sometimes uh, office women were referred to as love pirates. There were a number of of cases that made national news in which a, a husband left his wife for the woman who worked in his office. Um, And so this led to this large debate about the role of sexuality in marriage, um, about whether a woman who had had some experience in the labor force might actually be a better wife than a woman who had lived a purely private domestic life. The idea here would be if you had spent some time before marriage in the workforce, that you would understand the pressures that your husband faced. You would have some firsthand experience uh, with the stress of working. Um, so it's sort of an interesting moment. Um, women's presence in the white-collar office leads to a, a real debate about what type of partner um, would be best for a man in this new economy uh, in which many men will, ha- will be spending their days in the office. It's amazing. Um, do you mind analyzing? You excel at your analysis of the films and novels that you use at this early period again. And uh, do you mind giving us a sample of one of those uh, films or novels? 
Okay. Well, sure. Actually, one of my favorite stories um, is something uh, that occurred in the newspaper. So um, in this period of the early 20th century, when we are starting as a society to move away from this idea of female passionlessness, and we are starting to acknowledge uh, that women, in fact, do have sexual desires, um, certainly this awareness is first noted and um, discussed in terms of the sexual behavior of working class women, especially women who work in factories. But already by um, the early 20th century, some people are saying uh, that the sexual behavior of all working women has changed and is um, on the decline. So, uh, one of the things that some women in Boston do um, is they decide that uh, that stenographers and secretaries um, are not uh, the same sort of trampy women that uh, working class women who work in factories um, are, that these um, secretaries and stenographers are a sort of cut above, so they actually try to uh, pass a law that any woman who works in an office would actually have to work in a cage. Um, And the newspapers pick up on this story. Uh, Newspapers from around the country uh, have illustrations of women working in cages. Uh, The the workers oftentimes resist this and say, please don't make a monkey out of me. Um, So there's these these sort of interesting little stories um, that come about. In terms of some of the um, some of the early analysis of the literature uh, that I do, um, I guess some of the uh, some of the most interesting uh, films uh, and fiction from the 1920s really focus on this idea of will um, women be able to will married women who are working be able to resist. Uh, the sexual temptations of men who are likely more uh, successful than their husbands. Um, I, um, uh, Faith Baldwin is one of the authors that I look at a lot, um, and she's trying to create um, a new type of marital ideal there um, in which women can work um, without endangering their marriage, where they can work um, uh, in a way that supports their husband and doesn't challenge him. Some of her novels were also made into films. Is that correct? They were. Um, one of uh, the best film. there's a couple of films uh, in the 1930s that come out that um, are produced before uh, before the screening code is really, or the morals code, uh, is really enforced. One of them is Babyface, uh, with uh, Barbara Stanwyck, and another is called The Red-Headed Woman. And in both of these films, uh, you have a woman, uh, a working-class woman, who decides to use her sexuality uh, to work her way up the ladder. And in these films... Um, Again, it is the woman who's the vamp, uh, who is taking advantage of, of the sort of men who are vulnerable to these beautiful women's sexual temptations. These are films set in the Great Depression. Um, and so what's interesting about them is that they complicate the narrative in the sense that these women are, are, are economically 
destitute, uh, that there are rules against hiring women in some uh, occupations. These women, uh, the only skills they really have are their beauty. So they take advantage of them and they turn these men to putty uh, in their hands. Um, so it's this real sort of question about power. Um, are women the ones with the real power or is it our or are the men who control the hiring who are wealthy, are they the ones who have the power? And again, that's, that's sort of a, a dialogue or a discourse that we still have today. Indeed. And so is your general vision of these novels and films during this time period now moving into the interwar period um, that they generally reproduce gendered norms and hierarchies of power or that there's some kind of breaking down of barriers, too, at the same time? Um, I really think that they confirm um, traditional gender roles, um, that by the time we get uh, to the 1920s, there is widespread acceptance that women are, in fact, sexual. Certainly their sexuality is different than men's, uh, but by the 1920s we have the belief that uh, sexual pleasure, mutual sexual pleasure is crucial uh, for a marriage, uh, that women's um, sexual pleasure needs to be considered. Um, we also have in the 19, beginning in the 1920s and picking up in the 1930s, a new sort of um, psychological view. And in that new psychological view, uh, we see this belief um, that men... Um, have a sexual uh, nature that can't really be denied, but that also there's this notion that any man uh, who might try to uh, extort sex from an employee would be suffering from uh, something like a midlife crisis. So what we see happening once we acknowledge that women are sexual and that they aren't passionless, we see a real shift towards blaming women. And this new sort of psychological lens that, that becomes quite dominant in the 1930s says, you know, men are just men. Um, it's women's responsibility to sort of police and patrol sexual boundaries. And a man uh, wouldn't extort sex from a woman uh, unless he was under under some psychological crisis. So uh, he gets a sort of pass and all the responsibility is on women, right? That once women are sexual, uh, they're not passionless. There's a real emphasis on women are going to be scheming. And we see this, um, and it becomes especially sort of poignant for office women. We see this in the 1930s when there's an effort to... um, to change the laws that allow for what's referred to as heart balm torts. So um, heart balm torts are uh, the ability to sue for seduction, uh, for alienation of affection, uh, for breach of promise to marry. And this movement starts in the 1930s because people are concerned that women uh, working in the office are taking advantage of um, their sexual attractiveness. They are having sex with their employers, and then they are suing those employees and say, employers and saying, hey, those men promised to marry me. Uh, they didn't. Um, I've been seduced and abandoned, I want a big payoff. Um, so that's an example of this effort to sort of repeal the, the heart bomb torts is another example of this distrust of women. So we go from passionlessness where there's some concern about protecting women in the office 
uh, that is indicated by that story I said about the cage. Uh, but by the 20s and 30s, that concern about women is gone. Women are on their own. And there's a real, real distrust that women in the office are gold diggers um, and that they are going to use men. In Chapter 5, you trace... Um the differing attitudes towards sex at the office from World War II up until the 1960s. It's a moment, again, of change and continuity. And you also contrast uh, attitudes towards sex at the office in the private sector from public or government offices. Can you explain to us what's happening during this time period? So um, one of the most interesting sources that I found um, was from government offices during World War II. So during World War II, there's really concern about um, whether or not the government agencies that spring up to run the war effort are being run um, effectively and efficiently. And so we have um, a senator Uh, who goes on the radio and says, if you're working for the government in any capacity, if you know of any inefficiencies, if you know of any white-collar crime, let us know. Uh, And he creates this committee, the Ramspec Committee. And so I went through the letters that um, federal employees uh, wrote to this Ramspec Committee, and I found a number of cases in which people were complaining about sex in the office. Um, And what was interesting is that this is uh, World War II coincides with a period in which there is a new understanding of personnel management. And there's real concern about this idea of morality and productivity, that if you uh, want the highest productivity, you need to be concerned about the morale of uh, the workplace. So for the first time during World War II in the federal government, uh, given this concern about morale, you start to see uh, the government look into cases in which a, a supervisor's sexual behavior towards his employees uh, is creating uh, a sort of demoralized workforce. Um, so you have a couple of situations in which a man who is saying, uh, a supervisor who's saying things to his employees like, oh, um, uh, I see you're a little uh, sweaty. Oh, am I giving you hot flashes? Or, oh, don't you look good? Or, or groping at the women or kissing the women. That when the women complain for the first time, uh, they are being taken seriously. But what's interesting is that it only goes so far. If a woman can show that um, that this man's behavior is is corrupting the sort of um, energy and spirit of an office as a whole, uh, the government um, supervisors might do something about it. But if it's a case in which um, one man is sexually, what we would now call sexually harassing one female employee. Uh, the supervisors don't get involved, right? They say that is about, in essence, seduction. Um, That's a sort of personal one-on-one experience, and it's up to the woman to handle it. So we see this, um, again, this sort of new uh, approach to to personnel and how to uh, run offices, uh, leading to an acknowledgement of what we would later call sexual harassment. Um, And I forgot the rest of your question. (laughs) I think you answered it, actually. What was so surprising to me is, from your book, Sex in the Office, um, up until the 1960s, there was so much 
uh, sexual violence really towards women at the office, whether in the form of harassment, pressure, physical acts of domination, and um, how this violence, frankly, is presented benignly, both in fictional representations that you analyze and in the real-life descriptions in your sources. I wonder if you, you were as surprised as I was. Well, yes, I was definitely as surprised as you were. And also what was really um, distressing to me was the, um, the sort of uh, lack of experience and lack of sexual knowledge that these women have. So um, I was able to find some interesting uh, stories um, in the 1930s, um, some uh, sexologists started to interview women um, about their sexual histories. And the women um, went to these interviews only because they were also promising to give these women a gynecological um, examination. So these were poor women, very poor women, usually working class women who were working in the white collar office uh, at the lowest levels. Um, but these women were having some health problems, couldn't afford a doctor, learned about this study. And so in exchange for a gynecological um, assessment, uh, they gave their sexual histories. And first of all, um, a stunning percentage of these women, um, well over a third, had experienced sexual violence in their lives. And also, uh, the vast majority of these women entered into these interviews about their sexual past um, not having any sense of basic reproduction. One woman, actually a woman who had a bit of college education, thought that that babies were delivered uh, through a woman's belly button. Um, they really had no sexual knowledge at all. Um, a man who wrote uh, a very long um, uh, sort of assessment of his sexual, uh, a man by the name of Ward Smith, um, who in the 1930s started to uh, write down all of his sexual expe- ex- um, exposés or, or experiences with women that he encountered through his work, literally hundreds of them, those women um, didn't know anything about sex. One of the women that he slept with, for example, um, she performed oral sex on him. He ejaculated. She later, uh, when she was engaged, uh, went to talk to him because she was worried that maybe she uh, could have become pregnant uh, from oral sex. So these women are in these spaces with men. They are completely naive, and they uh, then find themselves in these situations in which they... Um, are treated just terribly and and violated. And because they're not even really sure about sexuality, they certainly don't have the language to talk about it. They aren't sure what happened, so they're not really sure um, what to do about it, uh, and they really can't articulate it. But yeah, it's it's just amazing, um, the lack of knowledge and and the percentage of women um, who experience some form of sexual violence. And um, what about then education and a kind of downward class push? At what point does working class do, do working class women enter the white collar office? So we already start to see them enter at the very lowest levels. Um, 
in the 19 teens and certainly in the 1920s. Um, and that is, and that's a problem in the sense that, um, once you have those working class women in the office, any gender solidarity, uh, that existed, uh, goes away because again, um, the sort of higher skilled women, um, are middle class women, even though they're working in public, they still, even in the thirties and forties and fifties, they still want to lay claim to a middle class status. So the only way they can do that is to, uh, try to distinguish, uh, their labor in the office from these working class women who are doing the filing and really the sort of unskilled labor. Um, but so there starts to be a tension between these two social classes and there's hostility between those women. So any sort of uh, gender solidarity really uh, is not apparent. Um, one of the things that I was hoping to find more of was um, women sort of warning uh, each other about men who were sort of notorious uh, harassers, uh, but there was really very little of that. Um, occasionally, I would find some reference that somebody had said something uh, to another woman about watch out for him, but it was so shameful uh, if some man came on to you because it suggested that uh, you were not presenting yourself as a proper middle class woman, that you had done something to ask for it, that women were, were shamed um, and didn't say anything. So that sort of silence about sexual assault or about rape that we have today was even more prominent then. Um, but in the context of the workforce, uh, jobs were scarce, especially for those women at the low skilled end of things. Uh, and so they really had no choice but to quit uh, or to put up with it. Uh, so it's, um, and we don't really, for those women in particular, uh, we don't have much evidence. The, what I found in these interviews uh, is really the best evidence I have um, for w- working class women. Um, going back to World War II and the records I have uh, from this Ramspec committee, um, Older women and middle class women uh, were really hard on poor women who seemed to come to the office uh, dressed in clothing that didn't uh, suggest that they were middle class, who didn't have the sort of poise that was associated with the middle class. And, and those women, those middle class women were really quite nasty to the working class women because, again, their status as, as middle class was threatened uh, by this sort of lower uh, tier of workers. Talk about Helen Gurley Brown, if you will. How did she come to incarnate what I believe you call a white-collar revolution in the 1960s? So everybody knows Helen Gurley Brown as the uh, the woman who gives us Cosmo uh, magazine as we know it. Um, and certainly feminists have generally been quite critical of her. Um, saying that she just cares about pleasing men. Uh, she forces women into an identity that is based solely around whether men uh, find the woman um, attractive or worthwhile. But the minute you start to look at Helen Gurley Brown's uh, papers, you start to realize that Helen Gurley Brown, despite her uh, her sort of uh, vigorous protestations to the contrary, Helen Gurley Brown cares much, much more about professional sex, 
professional success than she does about sexuality. Um, so for Helen Gurley Brown, she is an extraordinary realist. She understands that the uh, white collar office is a place where men's desires are front and center, uh, that where no one gives a damn about women and their needs. And so she, in essence, says to her readers, uh, first in sex in the office and then in sex um, uh, I'm sorry, first in sex in the uh, single girl and then in sex in the office. She says, you know what? Make it work for you. Uh, if you need to flirt a little, even if you need to sleep with somebody uh, to get to the top, do it. Um, flirting, she encourages in terms of, of actually sleeping your way to the top. Uh, she's a little more circumspect. She says, you know, I'm not uh, condoning this. I'm not even encouraging this. But if you are comfortable with it, um, Go for it. Uh, she's also very clear, though, that no woman who just relies on her attractiveness or her uh, sort of uh, sexuality is ultimately going to get very far. So uh, what a woman needs is to work on her career skills uh, and work hard, and that's the way uh, to move up. But she certainly is not um, opposed to the idea of using sexuality to level the playing field. Right For her, it's just pragmatic. Um, the white-collar office is a place where men uh, have their way. Uh, you're going to be hit on, so turn it to your advantage. My favorite story of hers, which has actually um, made an appearance in uh, Mad Men uh, in one of its early uh, seasons, is something called Scuttle. So her first office job, uh, she's still in business school trying to learn how to be a secretary. Uh, Helen Gurley Brown is in this office where uh, when there's ever some downtime, the men chase the women around the office and tickle them and tease them until they can take their panties off. Um, now that sounds uh, something close to rape uh, to us maybe, um, but Helen Gurley Brown says, Right, that is just the way it is, and it is worse uh, to find yourself uh, unscuttleable than to be the uh, victim of scuttle. So she is both um, capitulating to the male dominant culture, but she does so, I argue, um, as a way to ultimately break out of that male culture, right? So she says, you're going to have to put up uh, with all of this uh, sort of what we would now call sexual harassment. You're going to have to put up with it until you get to the point that you are so valuable to the company that you're working for or you're able to start your own business. Um, at that point, once you have the skills and the authority and you've worked your way up the ladder, um, you're going to be untouchable because... Um, the business is not going to want to lose you as an employee. Uh, you're going to finally have, once you have those skills and you've had those promotions, however you got them, you're going to have the ability uh, to have a bargaining tool, right? Before, in the 1930s and 40s, advice givers always told women uh, who would write in asking how to uh, get somebody who was harassing them to stop, the, the advice givers always said, you've got one option, quit, right? You are a, in essence, dime a dozen worker. You don't bring anything to the table. Men do. They're the valued employees. Um, find a way to stop it. You're on your own or you're going to have to quit. And so Helen Gurley Brown is significant in that she, she rejects that, uh, that sort of victim 
uh, perspective that the that the advice givers are are giving to women, right? The advice givers say you have no choice but to quit. Your virtue matters more. Helen Gurley Brown says, let's lose this notion of women can't be sexual, and let's see if you can, you know, turn it to your advantage. Uh, she also talks about how one of the benefits for women of working up the working their way up the ladder is that once you get to a certain uh, position uh, in a corporation uh, or in a business, uh, you're going to find yourself sexually liberated. That one of the perks of success that men get is if you're bringing in a lot of money to a company, um, people are going to turn a blind eye to uh, affairs you might have or other sort of uh, behavior that, that might not be socially accepted, right? If you're, if you're a rainmaker, nobody cares what you do outside the office or even in the office with your secretaries. She says that can apply to women too. Um, so she really, um, it's sort of, it is certainly distasteful. And as you read it, you're, you're sort of like, oh, I can't believe she's saying that. Um, but when you, but when you really look at her, uh, private, her personal papers and her writings, um, you see that she is trying to find a way to help women get around this male-dominated office, right? She, she doesn't. She's not an idealist. She says, this is the way it is. How can we sort of um, navigate around some of the worst parts of this so we can get to the top? So... Um, Feminists certainly uh, come after her for that, and they are in some ways right to do so. But for her moment in time, um, she offers women an alternative to quitting. Which they never had before. Right, which they never had before. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's based on the idea that before, what advice givers and the culture are saying is that your sexual purity, right, your sort of being a good girl, is what matters most, right? That um, no one is going to marry you if you're a trampy girl. Uh, Your virtue, uh, in some way, shape, or form, is your most valuable characteristic. Helen Gurley Brown says, guess what? Women are sexual too. Uh, Women have desires. Women can enjoy sex. So once she acknowledges women's sexuality in in that degree, um, it frees women up in a new way. She says, don't worry about it, right? Um, lots of women are having premarital sex. It's not the end of the world. Find some contraception. You'll be okay. Um, so it's a different perspective on female sexuality that gives women some more options, options that we certainly, um, that I certainly don't condone and that certainly are unnecessary now that sexual harassment is illegal. Uh, but for the period when it's not, it does open up some new space. And so that shift seems to be happening in the mid-1960s. Her first revamped Cosmopolitan magazine is out in 1965. At the same time, feminism is critiquing behaviors and attitudes in radical new ways. Can you tell us about this new feminist critique? So what's interesting is it actually starts, um, the sort of feminist critique of the sexual politics of the office actually start within the move, the sort of secretaries movement. So beginning in around 1970 or so, 
um, office workers start to organize and they are going to demand greater respect. Um, they are going to demand to be treated as skilled professionals. Um, so, for example, they start to say, uh, we want to wear pants. They start to say, we refuse to um, make you coffee every day. We refuse to go out and buy uh, gifts for your wife's birthday or your anniversary. Uh, we want to, be, want to be treated as professionals. Um, they have contests like the uh, the worst office chore. Um, one of the worst office chores was when a woman, uh, a secretary, was required to Xerox um, Playboy centerfolds for her boss so he could distribute them uh, to some of his clients, things like that. Sewing buttons on uh, your boss's um, pants, even when he might be still wearing them. Um, so we start to see this critique of the sexual politics of the office originate um, in the office workers' movement. But what's interesting is that even though they are demanding change, uh, you don't yet see a call to stop these behaviors. Um, it's not until uh, the mid-1970s uh, when feminists give this behavior that we now call sexual harassment a name and really start to organize uh, against it. Uh, Part of this does ultimately come out of the women office workers movement. Another part of it comes out of the rape crisis movement. So many of the feminists involved in the rape crisis movement realize that um, the situation in which a woman has been raped in the context of employment uh, brings about different issues, different concerns, different problems than a woman who has been, who has been raped uh, by someone she knows personally or by a stranger. Uh, so two different strands coming together in the mid-1970s to identify this problem, name this problem, and create a social movement around it. The coinage of the term sexual harassment happened at Cornell University in 1975? Mm-hmm. Um, a woman by the name of Carmita Wood, uh, who was working in the labs, um, her employer uh, would... Um, come up to her uh, when she was sort of bent over her desk, uh, would grab her breasts, would corner her in the stairwells uh, at a holiday party. Uh, he demanded that she dance with him, and in front of everybody, uh, he lifted up her blouse and was rubbing her back. Um, she finally decides, I cannot take this anymore, and she quits. Um, she can't find another job. She decides to file for unemployment insurance, and she is turned down for unemployment because uh, she quit. Um, and she goes to the Cornell um, Human Resources Office, where there happens to be two feminists, and they say this is wrong. Um, and so they send out email or they send out letters uh, to others they know who work in personnel offices to see if this is uh, a sort of isolated event or if this is happening. Um, or, or these experiences of sexual harassment are happen happening everywhere, and that's how the movement starts. <clears throat> One of the interesting things, I think, though, um, about the movement, uh, the first speak-out is held in Ithaca, New York, um, in the mid-1970s. And one of the interesting parts of the movement that is no longer uh, with us is that initially women talk about... Um, about sexual coercion, uh, but some women also talk about what they refer to as the other side of sexual harassment. The fact that uh, if you are a beautiful woman, 
uh, an attractive woman, you are going to uh, be promoted more often. It's going to be easier for you to be hired than if you're unattractive. So what's interesting is that the original movement for sexual harassment was not just about um, coercive or unwanted sexual um, approaches by a boss. It was also how women's appearance affected their ability to succeed uh, in the job market. Um, that's we don't really talk about anymore. Um, when the law uh, came about, it really just focused on sexual behavior um, that was unwanted and coercive. Um, so I think that that's really um, that's a break historically. That one of the things that uh, that people who are talking about workplace sexuality from the late 19th century on talk about is this notion of favoritism that when people uh, sometimes when critics will say, Hey, these women are in danger in the office. They're being taken advantage of. Oftentimes the response was, um, well, no, you know what? Um, a beautiful woman often benefits um, if she's the boss's favorite. So it all sort of equals out, right? Some women find themselves, um, at the end of uh, propositions that they don't want, they might even be coerced into behavior. Um, but some women benefit uh, from pleasing the boss. So it's a wash. So when uh, this sort of focus on beauty and how it factors in and this idea of favoritism, once that sort of goes away to some degree, um, that represents a historic shift. Your last, your last two chapters look at this evolution in legal definitions of sexual harassment. And I wonder if you'll be able to tell us a little bit about that, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, how perhaps Catherine McKinnon's analyses have influenced your work. Will you tell us about that? Um, so Catherine McKinnon is the, the sort of um, mother of sexual harassment law. Her uh, legal theories are the ones that... Uh, that really sort of create the law. And she certainly, um, she argues the Meritor versus Vinson case in 1986, which in, is when the Supreme Court determines that, yes, um, sexual harassment is, in fact, a violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So certainly she is the force behind uh, sexual harassment law. Um, what she looks at, uh, part of her argument, is that sexual harassment is... Uh, it should be illegal because it's not this personal one-on-one -on -one individual experience that in fact the way sexual harassment works is that it keeps women down. Um, what most women do when they experience sexual harassment, uh, they quit. And that means they are moving from job to job. They are never able to advance. Uh, and that means that sexual har harassment is a force of power that limits women's position in the labor force. So that's her argument. She says, right, it's not about... Um, about this guy liked this woman and she turned him down and that led to her uh, being dismissed. She says, this is a structural problem. Sexual harassment is a way that women are kept out of positions of power. Um, and that's crucial because the first, uh, court, the first court cases that make their way through the process, uh, in those court cases, the judges say, this is just about um, an individual uh, situation. 
Uh, this woman was not fired because she was a woman. She was fired because she wouldn't have sex with the, her boss who wanted to have sex with her. And that's not sex discrimination. That's not a violation of Title VII. So what's key about McKinnon is she says, no, that's all wrong. This is about sex. This is a way that women are really limited uh, in their ability to advance in a company. To They are sort of uh, forced to move from place to place. Uh, under the stress of never knowing when you're going to be assaulted in the workplace, you're obviously not going to be doing your best work. Uh, so it keeps women down. And the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which was ironically presided by Clarence Thomas at the time of the Vincent case, is that correct? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, can you tell us about those developments that, that led to their first guidelines as well? Well, what's the, so they start, um, they create the guidelines of quid pro quo, uh, which is very straightforward. Well, actually, McKinnon creates these, and they're adopted by the EEOC. Quid pro quo, um, this for that, right? You'll get a promotion, you'll get a raise uh, if you have sex with me. And then the more controversial hostile work environment in which um, your workplace is so saturated uh, with sexist and sexual um, connotations that it is impossible for you to work there. Um, today, uh, thanks to sexual harassment law, really uh, the cases of quid pro quo harassment are, are, are quite limited. Uh, in terms of when you look at the cases that are turned over to the EEOC, uh, 70% of them uh, fall under this category of hostile work environment. Uh, so the, the laws against sexual harassment, uh, the efforts to educate employees about the law has really been affected in, start, in stopping uh, some of the most egregious cases. Uh, in the case of hostile environment, though, there still is really um, a lot of, of, I would say, cultural um, hesitancy uh, or distrust of that category. Um, you oftentimes hear um, this idea of a hostile work environment uh, being contrasted with female enticement. Uh, so the idea here is, okay, so fine, you've got a boss or a coworker who um, is always te- sexually teasing you, snapping your bra strap, making lewd jokes. Um, that might be offensive, Uh, But lots of women use sex and try to entice men, right? That the female, uh, the female uh, pharmaceutical rep who dresses provocatively and uh, sort of goes out and has a drink with a potential client to try to land uh, a contract. Isn't she also using sex? Uh, Isn't that wrong? Isn't that exploitation? So at that sort of, um, uh, that level of harassment that is not uh, clearly exploitative, clearly I have power over you, you do this or you're losing your job, at that sort of second stage, um, there seems to be a lot of um, I don't know, skepticism about it. Um, Catherine McKinnon makes a point, and I, and, I, and I fully agree with her. She says, you know, really hostile environment harassment is just an unspoken quid pro quo. Right, but if you don't go along with that joke, if you say stop being an asshole, that's when that unspoken quid pro quo, quid pro quo can turn into a spoken. Really, you don't like it? Get out of here! You're fired. 
Um, so she, McKinnon makes this distinction between quid pro quo and hostile environment, uh, but she sees them as linked. And that's the part of the sort of sexual harassment law that, um, that Americans have not really signed on for. They see those two things as uh, completely different, that there is all of the uh, opinion polls um, show that the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans believe that quid pro quo is wrong, that the laws against it are exactly what we need, that they need to be enforced. But at that secondary level, uh, people say, you know what, women need to become less sensitive. Uh, women use sex to advance too. Um, so McKinnon saw them as connected. Most Americans do not. Speaking of American public opinion, you conclude your book with um, two highly mediatized cases of sexual harassment um, in Washington. We have the Anita Hill, uh, T- Clarence Thomas case during his um, nomination to become a Supreme Court justice, and then the uh, Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton case. Can you tell us what lessons we might learn from the way Americans reacted to those two cases? Well, what's interesting is, so Anita Hill is, of course, the moment in which the vast majority of Americans first hear this term sexual harassment. Um, Before that, really, it's something that lawyers know about, feminists know about, but if you asked uh, the average American on the street, they really would not yet have um, had a sense of what it was. Um, Anita Hill is important in that she raises awareness, and in the uh, months after the Hill, Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings, uh, the percentage of uh, cases um, or reports that the EEOC uh, gets go up by something like 70 percent. So, so Anita Hill is crucial in uh, sort of making sexual harassment uh, a, an issue um, in the minds of Americans. Um, what's interesting, too, about that case is that during the trials, uh, the vast majority of Americans did not believe her. But within a few years or so, the majority of Americans now do believe that she was telling the truth. Um, one of the interesting things, I think, uh, about Hill Thomas is that Hill Thomas shows how gender and racial stereotypes come together. Um, one of the things that we see uh, in the uh, discussion of Hill Thomas um, was that people tried to uh, to destroy her as a credible witness by bringing up a number of stereotypes about black women, uh, the sort of Jezebel stereotype that black women um, are, are much more sexual than white women, that they're hypersexual, uh, that they are not uh, that they have looser sexual morals. So you saw the, the fact it was clear that sexual harassment law um, is always going to be understood in the popular imagination in terms of not just gender stereotypes, uh, but racial stereotypes as well. Um, what was interesting about um, Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton uh, was that it raised, again, uh, in a different way, in a new way, the question of women's sexual autonomy that the uh, question was, was this really sexual harassment or was it consensual uh, sex? Um, Monica Lewinsky never said that uh, it was non-consensual. She always said that it was um, mutual. Uh, And so the question then became, was 
consent the issue or was the issue the imbalance of power? Um, Gloria Steinem writes a New York Times um, editorial in which she supports Bill Clinton and says, you know, uh, he did not force his attentions on her and therefore feminists can still support him. Other feminists said, no, um, he has indicated that he will hit on anybody, uh, any woman that he wants to hit on. And if they say no, he'll respect that no. Um, but isn't it a form of sexual harassment uh, if a man sort of tries to get sexual with every woman uh, he encounters in his professional life? Um, so there was this real question about, is this about power differentials? Uh, where does women's agency fit into it? Um, so it was something that actually divided the feminist community. Many feminists said um, there is really no such thing as consent between a supervisor, somebody with power to uh, fire you, and, an, and a sub- female subordinate. Um, and I think that we still have some uh, confusion over that. Um, also, a number of third-wave feminists, so young women uh, who identified as feminists, um, said, you know what? Um, Young women are more comfortable with their sexuality than they used to be. Uh, They are mature adults, even if they are only in their early 20s, and they can make decisions um, about their sexuality. They might not be the best decisions, but if they want to have sex with a powerful man, nobody should say they shouldn't be doing that. Uh, So it raised this new discussion about female sexuality and and did women still need some sort of protection, especially young women, especially women in public. So in many ways, the the debate there was similar to what had occurred 150 years before with this sort of, hmm, uh, what should our attitude be towards uh, women in public, young women, uh, and women in sexual agency. Julie Barabitsky, how do you conclude your book? What is the status of sex at the office today? Um, the status of sex in the office today, I think, is still um, very much up in the air. Uh, there's still many people who say uh, sexual harassment has gone too far, but one of the things that maybe I didn't say early on is that I wanted my book to be a book about uh, the history of, of what we call sexual harassment. And very early on in my research, I realized that it was impossible to do a book just on sexual harassment because sexual harassment, non-consensual sex, has always been seen as simply the um, other side of consensual sex, that you've got both in the office. That's the way Americans in the mid-19th century thought about it, uh, and that's certainly what we have today. Something like 50% of Americans will meet their partner or their spouse in the workplace. So we still have this uh, a workplace that is quite sexualized, where there's a lot of romance, where there's a lot of sexuality that is consensual and pleasurable. Um, but there's also still a good bit of non-consensual and coercive sex. Um, And sex still uh, can be a problem in terms of morale. There's still concerns about favoritism. Uh, The EEOC is still trying to figure out whether or not favoritism might be a violation of Title VII. So uh, 150 years later, we have laws, uh, but sex uh, in the workplace is still as vexed, 
as uh, controversial, as problematic as ever. There was a book that came out a couple of years ago um, that talked about um, office spouses, right? That now, because so many men and women are working together, they are again representing a threat to uh, those people's marriage. So the same debates, the same uh, concerns that were around a century ago, still with us today. So I would say, uh, in terms of sex in the office, um, it is with us forever. <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time, Julie Barabetsky. Please, though, before we conclude, tell us what you're working on now. Uh, my new book is, or my new, what I hope to be my new book project, uh, examines Republican feminists in the second wave of the women's movement. Um, we now, of course, think about Republicans and feminists as being, uh, to, to call somebody a uh, Republican feminist would be an oxymoron. Uh, but in fact, in the second wave, there are a number of feminists who were uh, active, ardent feminists. And so I'm trying to... Um, to figure out what it meant to be a Republican feminist. Um, did feminism differ for women who identified as Republicans or Democrats? What were the places where uh, they overlap? That sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Take care. 